It's 2016. Beyond One More, artist, community organizer, and land defender, wakes up at Oseti Sakuin camp at Standing Rock. And she's not the only one. As the sun climbs over the camp that morning, people from nations across Turtle Island rise up from their tents. The newscasts only told part of the story. This coalition of nations, races, and political proclivities have gathered to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline and protect sacred waters. But there's so much more to the story. These land defenders battle more than Keystone XL. They're at war with Black Snake. Black Snake is a figure in Lakota stories, the enemy in a seventh generation prophecy that many nations across Turtle Island have variations of. Black Snake represents darkness and greed, a poison, a sickness that twists and strangles life. When the seventh generation rises up to bring balance not just to people but to the earth, finally, Black Snake will be defeated. There is a seventh generation principle and prophecy. The principle serves as a reminder to make choices that will be sustainable for seven generations into the future. Whereas the prophecy says that after years of destruction and harm through colonial policies and actions, a snake will poison the lands and the only way to defeat it is through uniting as one nation to fight against the black snake. What the news reports did not know was that when Standing Rock began, many saw these land defenders as the answers to their ancestors' prayers. As the people of every nation, race, and background gathered at Standing Rock, there was a deep hope. Many believe that this generation is the seventh generation. That morning, as protests continue, Beyond began to draw sketches for a painting. On a crumpled piece of paper, she began to draw victory. Hello everyone, I'm Carly. I'm of Cree and Métis descent from Treaty 2 territory on the prairies of Turtle Island. And I'm Danielle. My ancestors are Scottish and Norwegian. I was born and raised as a grateful guest on the unceded ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations on the Pacific Northwest of Turtle Island. Welcome to the Restory Podcast. So last episode, we explained how we got here and how our story began in the frostbitten footsteps of a nine-year-old Choctaw girl. This love has nourished seven generations and Her love would inspire her granddaughter, Dr. Michelle Johnson Jennings, to coin the term restoring. When we restore, we challenge colonial narratives and amplify stories of indigenous resistance, thrivance, and love. When we were doing the research for this show, we came across so many stories from the past three years of how indigenous people have been restoring during the pandemic, and we're spending the rest of this season in these stories. And today we're amplifying the stories of those who have been restoring their connection to the land over the past three years of the pandemic. The stories that we tell about the land matter. Colonial narratives have justified exploitation of the land. Like a snake, colonial narratives twist and strangle life. The stories we share today are of those who have battled these colonial narratives and are in that process of restoring connection, healing, and life. 
Um, also, on today's episode, we will be sharing stories that include situations of abuse and colonial violence, um, including residential schools and police brutality. So please take time to pause and take space for yourself if it's at all needed at any point today. story it's it's really important those stories are all around they got a spirit they live and once we reconnect to the land and waters and air then we get that within ourselves this is felix lockhart good morning my name is felix lockhart i am from chitsuke first nation within the uh, keiko territory i was born out there in the land that helped my relatives, my aunties and uncles. And uh, it was many years ago since then. I was more or less raised up at the uh, residential schools system for most of my early years. Felix is a avid hunter, trapper, and fisherman, and is a fluent Denisoline speaker. He has previously served his community and nation through various leadership positions, but now works as an elder traditional cultural advisor and facilitator with the Indigenous Wellness Program at the Stanton Territorial Hospital in Yellowknife. Felix's restoring journey begins long before the pandemic, when he was in his 20s, below the Arctic Circle, out on the land of the Letsuke First Nation. I was three years old when I went to residential school, so I missed out a lot of that. You know, I was brainwashed, like, to be someone that I was not. And so you know, I had to relearn everything. I really was appalled after I grew up and matured and so tired of it by the time I was in school that I just went to the land, you know, to where my, my mom and dad, my uncles and aunties were. I had the opportunity to run dogs there. I had eight dogs. My dad loaned me five and I got three more. And I had the experience of traveling around the barren lands in the tree line and dog game in my 20s. Learning how to hunt and fish and trap with that that dog team and uh, going to places where you know my people were like where all the portages are, where all the berry pickings are, where the caribou, where they go, how they travel, where the moose goes, muskox, everything. After the horrors of residential school, the land became Felix's healer. Of course, residential schools and colonization did take its toll big time. That way, I was forced to be someone that I was not, and so uh, I took the initiative to change, to let go a lot of that negative stuff, incorporate love and kindness, the values that understood by my mother and my father and my uncles and aunties, cousins. They were out there in the land yet. And I'm able to retain that love and kindness to this day. For Felix, reconnecting to the land has been essential and healing. When Felix married his late wife, Sandra, Healing through connecting to the land continued to be a crucial part of their life together. I just wanted to acknowledge my, my late wife, Sandra, Sandra Faye Lockhart. We got married in 1996, and she's a Cree from Mr. Wasis, Saskatchewan. Soon after we got married, we realized that, wow, we did have a lot of flaws. You know, my mm. trauma from residential schools and colonization, she was traumatized from foster homes. Just one after another, taking this young girl from her reserve, experiencing violence, racism, being violated, molestation and raping and severe beating. And so 
we decided earlier in our life, in our marriage, to help each other like that, to support each other, her and her trauma and mine and my trauma. And so we were able to meet that challenge. And so throughout that time, too, we talked about this camp. We talked about a place where we want to be able to go. And where else do we go? We've been going above the tree line since our son was young. Two years old, I've been taking him. And we go out to Bearland year after year. Truly enjoyed it, you know, hunting caribou, harvesting musk, listening to the ptarmigans in the morning, singing their spring songs, the winter migration of the yeah, snowbirds, peacefulness, calmness when the sunset, the sunrise, the snow and, you know, the wind and everything. So much to be grateful for out there. So the medicinal plants that grow on the land, that grow underwater, where our relatives are buried. We know all those places and we know where the caribou crossings are. Those animals, they're not resources. They are gifts from our creator. They are relatives. When the caribou comes into our area, we are related. They know us and we know them. When they see us, they know who they're looking at. Whenever we harvest, we are thankful. We, we pay the land. We talk to the creator. And we did that year after year. And then we started to realize that, why don't we think about the camp in our place for the younger people? Let's realize that the younger people were stuck in the community. You know, they had no place to go without being judgmental. You know, realize, you know, what we could do is start, you know, a place out there in the land. That dream that we had, and uh, she passed on in, you know, June 11. 2019, and I, I continued on that dream, you know, in her honor. During the pandemic, Felix began developing Tashe Waters Healing Society, a land-based healing camp for Diné youth. We're trying to change the narrative now as to how we're going to be able to go forward into the future. It's time for healing. It's time to for ourselves to be connected again. His restoring journey and the restoring journey of his wife, Sandra, will impact the next seven generations. Through Tashe Waters Healing Society, Felix and Sandra are helping this generation resist, restore, and rise. For the future generation to be able to immerse in that same value system of our indigenous selves, how are we going to live? How do we live on this earth? The place where we can learn that is out in the land, out in the waters. Because that's where it's all our codes are, unwritten codes. And it comes out through the Dena laws in our case. That instructions is embedded in our language, already there, and it's been there for thousands of years. Thankfully and gratefully, we're able to basically reconnect and obtain those uh, knowledge, those codes of how do, how do we live. It's all there. It's all there, you know, when we, you know, when we drink the water and when we, you know, breathe the air and when we, you know, harvest the caribou and the mussocks, mm-hmm. you know, when we eat the meat, it's all there. And when we use, utilize the clothing from there, it's, it's there. And, like, you know, and, and the elders were always maintain that. be able to go and to touch a memory that has been left to you was really, really incredible. This is Tammy Taroa, a Maori researcher who works to build species and environmental resilience in the face of climate change. She works to move her iwi, the Maori word for tribe, and the land towards abundance. 
Kia ora. My name's Tammy Tairoa. I'm of Māori descent. My iwi is Ngāti Kuri. Our tribal territory is further most iwi in the North Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Ka ko Waiora ngā marae, ko te hāpua te tehi o ngā papakainga, ko Ngāti Kuri te iwi, ko te whakakohatu te hapu. Um, now I live in the middle of the North Islands with uh, my husband's tribe in Ngāti Koroki Kahukura. Uh, we live below Maunga Tautari and have three children. Our story begins just after Tammy moved. She was unpacking moving boxes. She and 10 other families had just moved into their papakainga, their tribal housing, when suddenly, one afternoon, she gets this call from her cousin. I had been requested to do a bit of work with my cousin, Sheridan Waitai. She approached me to work on a project for Rangitahua. Rangitahua, which you might know as their Kemetic Islands, are a thousand kilometers off the northern tip of Aotearoa in the Pacific Ocean. It's one in four pristine ocean environments left in the world. It's a host to some of our most amazing and incredible migratory species that don't have flight paths and song lines across the Pacific and across our ocean spaces. But the special part of Rangitahua is that it acts as a haven, thriving habitat for those species to rest, um, to raise young, to sing and to talk to each other. And through science, we've been learning some of the incredible stories about what these taonga are telling us and leaving for us. Sheridan asked Tammy to help develop a kaupapa Māori, or a Māori-led research program, to study the changes happening on Rangitahua on a species level and environmentally as a result of climate change. So we have warming ocean temperatures, pollution and plastics. We're seeing hotter temperatures in some seasons and absolutely wet conditions in others. And so the seasons are changing drastically. By studying those signs, Tammy and her team are able to work to build resilience across Aotearoa in the face of climate change. The project Sheridan asked Tammy to lead is a restoring project. For centuries, colonial governments have imposed oppressive and violent policies that have deliberately fractured the connection Tammy's iwi, Natikuri, have to Rangitahua and have made it very challenging for the Māori to protect and care for Aotearoa. This project was a powerful moment in the restoring journey for Tammy's iwi, her tribe, but also in her personal restoring journey. That afternoon, as Sheridan explained the project to Tammy, Tammy was reminded of a video she watched several years earlier. I, I just saw a video online of people talking about Rangitahua, so archaeologists who had unearthed and uncovered different tonga and tools on the island, and a non-iwi member or non-Māori or just an archaeologist was speaking to who we are as a people and what we did and how we lived and how we got there and, and what the, describing the occupation of Rangitahua looked like. We consider Rangitahua, the island, as our ancestor, as, a, as our tūpuna and it was really hurtful to hear somebody you had did not know talking about your grandparent to the world through a totally different lens and through different tools, I felt quite hurt by it because it washed over the deep and meaningful layers that existed within the tonga they were unearthing. And for me, 
that was the turning point in terms of prioritizing restoring in our project and repositioning the types of messages that are occurring. We want to tell the really rich, connected stories about Rangitahua for all of Aotearoa, for Indigenous people worldwide, and to have Indigenous methodologies and ways of knowing and being leading types of programme for the benefit of everybody. And so that was probably a key turning point. And with that, the project began. We're one of the first iwi-led or tribal-led deva bids. When we talked to her, Tammy and her team were two years into their program, and they've been doing what they set out to do. They're telling rich, connected stories of rangitahua through kaupapa Māori, or Māori methodologies. Built a taiao program, which is an environmental program, and for the first time we've got 15 of our tribal members working across our lands, restoring and protecting. Um, and so we have people in native nursery development, biosecurity, biodiversity leads, restoration leads, planting leads around, and they're all our people um, growing our knowledge together of our whenua again. As Maori researchers study the land using Indigenous methodologies, they're reimagining the space every single day. And every time they've just got a new level of knowledge, a new level of connection, richer, deeper stories that they're sharing, play-based stories. And we take those learnings when we go to Rangitahua and we support to apply those learnings there. After years of being barred through colonial policies from returning to or protecting Rangitahua, Tammy and her iwi, Natikuri, have returned home three times in the past two years. So they were, re- they were really special moments returning there. During these voyages, they shared the proverbs and stories that have been left for them and discussed how they can apply to their contemporary lives. And we've gone from the theoretical romantic thinking, because Rangitahu has always been, I suppose, in our papa, in our, in our memories, in our minds, the stories that have been given to us for many, many generations. And so to actually be able to go and to touch a memory that has been left to you was really, really incredible. As Tammy's team of Māori researchers restore their connection to land through methodologies that build resilience in the face of climate change, the land itself is being restored. Where colonial narratives had justified exploitation and destruction, Tammy's iwi, Natikuri, is elevating the voice of their tapuna, Rangitahua, of Aotearoa, and of Mother Earth. And so a lot of the time, what has occurred, particularly for Rangitahua, particularly around other taonga we have, is that those stories are not told by us. Those stories are layered with really different perspectives or views of the world and of them. Also, some of the messages that occur can be really hurtful and really damaging, and once they're out there, you can't pull them back. The stories we tell about the land are powerful because they have the ability to shape our understanding, forge connections, and inspire a sense of responsibility. When we tell stories about the land, we learn how to care for it. And in return, the land cares for us. And it was a quote by Professor Linda Smith. And she said, climate change is a result of racism towards indigenous knowledge. Colonial narratives justified exploitation of the land. The climate crisis is a direct result of these narratives. 
When we return to indigenous knowledges, ways of reconnecting to land as our relative, healer, teacher, and so much more, Tammy explained there is so much hope. The hope Tammy shared with us was deep and rooted in the land. You could feel it in her smile, see it in her eyes when she talked about her amazing team, and hear it in her brilliant laugh. And so if we think about that a little bit, the hope comes from our way of knowing and being, doesn't it? And so we're constantly faced with deficit messaging all around us, of rattling messaging, of act now. And yes, that's important. And yes, it is scary. And it is, if we don't move quickly and change quickly, um, then we are going to be in a very, very, very serious place. We're already a serious place now. So what we're trying to do is to actually ensure that the messages and the stories that we promote are with care, are with love, tension, are with hope, are always marked in a future step, a future state. Tammy's iwi, the intergenerational stories, the connection between indigenous peoples across Turtle Island and Aotearoa, and the movements at Standing Rock, they all converge to emphasize the significance of ancestral knowledge the shared experience of Indigenous communities, and the united efforts to protect the environment for the benefit of the next seven generations. Restoring connection to land is powerful. Honestly though, working on this episode has been challenging. I celebrate and honor the reconnections that Felix and Tammy have to the land. And I think I find myself at a different stage in the process of reconnection. Right now, there are roadblocks that are preventing my journey of connecting to the land. I live in an area I don't feel very connected to. The air isn't clean. There's this stench that clings to my clothes each time I go for a walk and when I think about going out on the land, I think about the memories of my childhood, when my family would travel north to my parents' communities. And, you know, back then it was easier to travel there when I was a child, since, you know, most of my responsibilities involved making sure my bed was made or doing my homework. But now that reconnection is barred by a lack of resources and time to travel. I don't know where you find yourself, but if you're anything like me, I just wanted to take a moment to let you know it's okay if you find yourself at roadblocks or on detours in this journey. I'm still restoring what it means to be connected. What about you? Wow. So many thoughts. Um, you know, um, in textbooks and in education and just growing up as a settler, this the history of Indigenous peoples is, it feels like it's just framed as we're all good now, that uh, Indigenous peoples were here and then, oh, Canada happened. Um, and I guess the more that I open my ears and my heart to the stories of Indigenous folks, I've learned that that narrative just isn't true. Um, for me, I guess restoring my connection to land has meant recognizing the true nature of the story, this dominant way of relating to the land. The truth is that this land that I'm standing on, sitting on as I'm recording this and that I live on, um, that it was stolen. And when it was stolen, a story was planted to justify that theft. And that story is greed. 
Greed reduces the land, something that nourishes and heals. It reduces it into nothing more than a resource or a commodity to be taken and taken and taken and taken until there's nothing left, um, until the waters are poisoned and the air is wildfire smoke. And restoring has meant considering the ways that the story of greed, like a black snake, um, it slithers and persists in my heart. Um, an example, I guess, would just be each time I purchase something that's unethically made that either exploits people or the planet, but I just have to buy because it's such a good deal. As I was listening to the original caretakers of this land while making this episode and just being with the Cedar team, I'm also learning that there are better stories about the land. Um, stories of the land as, as healer, relative, teacher, protector, and also better stories about humanity. That these hands, uh, I guess y'all can't see it, but I'm just I'm reaching out to Carly with them. Uh, these hands were not created to take. They were created uh, to protect. These hands weren't designed to tap credit cards, but to help in the healing of this land. And as I acknowledge that I live on stolen land and grapple with the stories that were planted with that theft, I'm learning to walk softly, gratefully, and uh, with responsibility. Hi there, my name is Bion Renmore. I'm a Cree, two-spirit, multidisciplinary artist and indigenous activist. Originally, um, I'm from uh, Cross Lake Cree Nation in Northern Manitoba, um, but I now reside at a queer arts collective known as Lupinwood, which is located in Pecumtuck Territory in Western Massachusetts. We began this episode by teasing the story behind Beyond's painting, Black Snake Defeated. This story was born in a battle for the survival of the land and is a powerful example of what it means to restory. It was shortly after witnessing firsthand the use of attack dogs and paramilitary against indigenous water protectors in Ocheri Sakon at Standing Rock in North Dakota. As Beyond watched violence unfold, a colonial agenda of climate destruction that was executed with rubber bullets, attack dogs, and bulldozers, she began to paint. The painting represents the full story arc of how colonization has turned us against each other. The painting depicts thousands of identical figures, all with the same faces and long black hair. Some of them hold leashes of attack dogs, and some are being attacked by the dogs. Weaving and slithering throughout the conflict is this huge black snake, which accumulates in the center. We are all gathered around the head of the snake as it finally is beheaded. For beyond, this is what victory looks like. People of every nation, race, creed, standing together to defend continued life on Earth. And I think in order to achieve victory, we need kind of all of the above. Uh, we need to build power from the overlap between these like dramatically different positions um, in order to like reach the head of the snake and cut it off. 
When she finished Black Snake Defeated, Beyond spent the next few years running fundraisers for another indigenous community she is involved with, the Wet'suwet'en Land Defenders. Over more than a decade, multiple pipelines have been proposed through the Wet'suwet'en Yenta. Yenta is the word for Wet'suwet'en land. It covers more than 9,000 square miles of unbroken forests, mountains, lakes, and salmon-bearing rivers, including the sacred river, the Wet'suwet'en which is one of the last few clean, drinkable waterways on Earth, and it's a crucial artery that has brought life for millennia to the human and non-human relatives of that land. This territory has never been ceded, which means it was never lost in war, surrendered or signed away by treaty to the Canadian government. It's hard to, it's hard to imagine uh, what the Yenta actually is, but if it's helpful, you can think of it as it's like a country within another country that's being invaded for its resources. That may sound extreme, but that is actually the situation up there. Like it is not Canada, for example. And there are no documents that say that it is. Wet'suwet'en, with the support of allied indigenous nations and settlers, have successfully prevented construction of four proposed pipelines through their territory. These pipelines weren't halted out of the goodwill of the government of Canada, but by Wet'suwet'en and allies occupying the ground directly in the path of pipeline equipment. Over the last couple of years, things have taken a turn, have intensified quite a bit. There have been a handful of uh, militarized raids uh, that were fairly well documented. In 2020, Bian got word of impending raids on Wet'suwet'en. She bought a van, packed up her life, and then the world shut down, and with it, the Canadian-American border. Everything shut down, but the uh, but industry continued, and I had to again like watch my friends get hauled off by the police kind of brutalized just on my on the screen on my phone and yeah it's very very difficult to watch that happen from a distance beyond pivoted spending the next months fundraising to support those at Wet'suwet'en a year later beyond made it across the border to visit family she heard things that were once again escalating at Wet'suwet'en and went there for what she thought would be a few days but what became 3 months out on the land resisting Coastal Gas Link, or CGL, pipeline construction. This all accumulated in a two-day-long raid in November of 2021. We got up there and immediately started a an encampment directly on the drill pad site because CGL was preparing to drill underneath the, the river. In a later update, Bjorn explained that, quote, I watched as Wet'suwet'en elders and matriarchs were placed in handcuffs and taken to prison. Elders being denied their life-preserving heart medication. Regalia was cut from their bodies and placed in black garbage bags. I saw other indigenous allies who had come to stand up against a common enemy brutalized, dragged through the snow by their braids into paddy wagons. Accredited members of the media who were present were also arrested and prevented from documenting the atrocities being committed. They were put in jail. Beyond herself was put in solitary confinement for a time. That's what's happening um, like right now. Basically, the drilling has begun up there. Um, 
a lot of damage is occurring. They've allowed tailings to seep into the river. They're being fined for it. They're paying the fines, and um, it doesn't hurt them. Um, it's just a slap on the wrist, and that's how the legal system functions. Right now, this land, water, and way of life are at stake. It caused a lot of damage already, but there's still there's still folks up there um, trying to prevent, trying to make it so that oil will never or gas will never flow through that pipeline. Basically, um, sorry, this is a really difficult. Through her painting and story, she exposed what restoring is capable of doing. When we restore, we have the capacity to battle black snakes instead of each other. I have been taught during my time on the Wet'suwet'en Yenta that when we are faced with hatred and violence from people in and out of uniform, that we do our best to become mirrors, that we might be able to see the relatives in each other whose lives are borrowed from the same lands and waters which we protect. We are taught to see things in this way so that we can keep our knives clean and sharp until the time comes to cut the head off of this fucking snake, which gets granted the sanctity of something living but is the enemy of all life. Often, we don't tell our stories until they're finished, when we know how it all ends. Beyond is right in the middle of this process, restoring in the middle of a war. Restoring like this, when we're in the middle of a struggle, can speak other endings into existence. It's a vision of a victorious future that does not yet exist but the belief in it continues to unite living generations of indigenous people around what our ancestors fought for and enables sight lines into decolonial futures. It's the vision that brought th those thousands of people together at Standing Rock on what Soden territory and all other like front lines <laughs> across Turtle Island over the, the past hundreds of years. There are so many prophecies about the seventh generation across Turtle Island, one theme is constant. Victory comes when a generation rises up together. Every nation, every race, every creed standing together to protect the land. We as indigenous people are groomed from birth by lived and intergenerational trauma, but also by traditional teachings to one day step into the positions of leadership youth across Turtle Island are stepping into right now. What brought those at Standing Rock to believe that this prophecy would be fulfilled was the same hope that's so evident in Beyond's words. We are seeing mass movements of those from nations across Turtle Island and this world protecting the land. This is the generation that is uniting for the good of the next seven generations so that they can have access to clean waters and fresh air the same waters and air that have sustained the past seven generations. When we restore our relationship to the land, we know the land is our tapuna, as our ancestor. 
and challenge the world to see our precious relative as someone to be protected and honored. Our ancestors made decisions and acted in a way that ensured the success of current generations, and now it's our turn. It's our obligation to focus on ensuring that love and care is felt seven generations from now. When we restore our relationship to land, we know the land like Felix does, as healer, as we reconnect that healing flows into our communities. When we restore our relationship to the land, we know the land as our tapuna, as our ancestor, and challenge the world to see our precious relative as someone to be protected and honored. When we restore our relationship to land, our enemy has the capacity to become our ally. Our generation rises up to kill a snake. At the end of each episode, we want to create space for you to restore. To take a moment to pause, to be still, and to restore your connection to land. If you're able to get outside for this reflection time, please do. This doesn't have to be out on your ancestral land. It can be a neighborhood street, a front porch, or even standing near a window. Take a moment to become aware. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you breathe? How are you breathing in that air? Take some long, deep breaths. Take a moment to reflect on what it feels like to sit upon Mother Earth, to be held by the land. Is there a tree, a plant, a rock that catches your attention? Take a moment to focus on it. Think of it not as just a object, but as your kin. How did it call to you? How did you feel when you were near this kin, its relative? Think about how you are related to that tree, or plant, or rock, etc. How are you related to the earth on which you live and laugh and grow? How are you connected to the waters, the forests? When you think of the land, what images or stories come to mind? Take a moment to notice those memories. Notice the moments of connection and of disconnection. Notice where you are in your own journey of restoring your connection to the land. Reconnection, it's a journey. How can you continue to reconnect? Land is a relative, a teacher, a healer. How are you restoring your connection to the land? Your story is powerful. Is there anyone you want to share your reflections with? We would love to hear your story. Whether it was a reflection from this episode or a picture of the land you were being held by during these reflections, if you're comfortable, please share your story with us on social media. Thanks for listening to the Restory Podcast, a show where we challenge colonial narratives and amplify stories of Indigenous resistance, thrivance, and love. 
this season, all our music was by our featured artist, Kino Benale, a Dena DJ, producer, and musician. His latest album you can find and purchase on Bandcamp. It's called Nahima Nahashtasan. The Restory Podcast is a production by Cedar, Covernet's Indigenous Engagement, Development, and Research Pillar 7. Cedar is an Indigenous and woman-led research team. Our mission is to use community engagement, knowledge sharing, and research to ensure that Indigenous stories are heard. Our guests represent themselves, and their views may not reflect those of Cedar. We are dedicated to honoring our guests, their honest perspectives, and lived experiences. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. Leave us a review and share the Restory podcast with everyone. And we also love hearing from our listeners. You can reach us at our Instagram at cedar underscore seven. You can learn more about the Restory podcast on Cedar's website, which you can find below in the bio. This episode was produced by me, Danielle Ray, and the wonderful Sterling McGregor. Edited by Felipe Contreras, Tamara Chavez, Jordan Dirksen, Carly Morso. Mixed by Felipe Contreras. Our executive producers are Tamara Chavez, Michelle Johnson Jennings, Katie Collins, and Kimberly Heiser. Our senior producer for this episode is Felipe Contreras. Our producers are myself, Danielle Ray, Jordan Dirksen, and Sterling McGregor. Carly Morso and me, Danielle Ray, uh, were your hosts today. Well, we'll see you next time. Is yintaaccess.com. Uh, there you can find like the whole history of the camp and of the movements. Um, there's also an Instagram, uh, yintaaccess. Same name. And yeah, thanks for having me on your podcast. This is my first time trying to do anything like this, so. Um, <laughs> Good luck with the rest of the show, and uh, thank you, Kanana Skumpton. Hey, hey.